0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Future Food Weekly Live. I'm Sonali Figueres, your co-host, and joining me is Steve Molino. Hey, Steve.
1: Hey, Sonali. How's it going?
0: Yeah, not too bad. You know, Um, it feels like this is the proper start of the year with everybody. I feel like everyone's back to work and um, the news cycle has picked up again. So there's lots of reporting to do.
1: There is there, it. It it feels obvious. Like just even like reading through the newsletter this week and what I've been hearing about and in the conversations that have been going on. It's it's busy, which is which is really really good. Um, what's also really good is apparently last week, people like us talking about cooking.
0: <laughs> I have heard this too. Apparently we should have some kind of mini cooking show Ah, which is
1: the the last thing the world needs from absolutely me at least you might might be a fantastic cook but we don't need that from me I did get some really good thoughtful people sending me (laughs) recipes for uh what to do with jackfruit. so a couple people sent me things and even like 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 for instance like Roe Condor from Plant-Based Food Association she's like she's one of the, the nicest people out there and she hears me struggling to use jackfruit and sent me uh, some good stuff to try. <laughs>
0: That's so funny. So full disclosure, I've actually written cookbooks. So I definitely don't want to say that I'm not into food. I, I really wait, 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 wait. We, we talked about cooking I know, and
1: cookbooks I, last week,
0: and you didn't mention that you wrote Oh, No, cookbooks? I completely forgot. So what? for people that are interested, my cookbook, it, one of them is on Green Queen. It's a, it's a zero waste, um, cooking guide and vegan meal plan. And I wrote all the recipes, all, especially all the savory ones. Um, a really lovely lady co-wrote the desserts and the breakfast, but I'm more of a savory recipe person. And, um, I used to do a recipe column every week in the green queen Monday newsletter for a whole year. I did all the recipes and then I, I co I ghost wrote my mom's cookbook when I was 18. So my mom is is an amazing cook and she wanted to write a cookbook, but she, and she would say this herself is not the world's best writer. So she asked me to write the cookbook for her. And yeah, so I've written a few cookbooks actually and lots of, of of course you have, of course you have. I completely forgot to mention it. I never, you never cease to amaze me. It's just
1: like, yeah. Oh, on top of all these other things. I've yeah. I've written a couple of cookbooks, which is like a major accomplishment for, for no, but a, is, a normal person.
0: No, I just, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I'm the worst person at sharing stuff, but I, I think I'm a, I'm a cook that I cook more instinctively. So a lot of times I find recipe writing kind of challenging because, um, you really have to be precise in recipe writing. Right. And like one of the secrets that people don't realize is that there's so many cookbooks out there and there's so much like great photography and great ideas, but it's actually really hard to write recipes that are very usable and that are very, very tested. And that was one of the, the real kind of Uh, challenges when we wrote the cookbook for green queen is that we really had to test the recipes over and over and make sure that they work and it's not easy you know especially if you're like me and you're someone who like improvises and like adds a pinch of this and a pinch of that so recipe writing is a real skill and uh, oftentimes you can be a really good cook and maybe not as great of a recipe writer um
1: but- no a hundred percent and that's that's one of the things that always like stressed me out with with cooking is I get it from people that I know they say here's the recipe and and it would just say add an ingredient I'd be like how much and they just know off the top of their head oh it's a tablespoon or a teaspoon of this and so for people like me I need it spelled out very very clearly so I can't imagine writing a cookbook and needing it to be like perfectly perfectly outlined uh, Cause you need to write it for people like me where most of my recipes are like microwave between three to five minutes. And I'm like, Ooh, okay. So do I do three or I do think, I do, do, do I do five?
0: I think <laughs> we need the Molino microwave manual. <laughs> I'll work
1: on that. I, I think it could be revolutionary.
0: I mean, microwave. <laughs> so it, I don't know if you, you read the spoon, but I love, um I love what they do over there. And so it's CES this week. And so Michael from The Spoon is sharing a lot about the new appliances that are out at CES, the big tech show. And there's some really interesting uh, countertop appliances for kitchens that are coming out that are kind of mixing microwave technology with infrared technology with air fryer technology, which is oh so boy. interesting as we get away from ovens which I don't know if most people know this, but your oven is one of the like least carbon uh, or emission friendly appliances in your house.
1: So, well, please tell me that an air fryer is is or a microwave no, is good.
0: Much better, much better. Okay. Efficiency point of view. That's what I'm saying. An oven is the absolute worst. It's the least efficient. And actually, if you use your oven, just turning it on and turning it off is is where a lot of the the power it, the power issue comes up comes from the emissions issues come from so if you are going to use your oven you should you should maximize the usage which means you should do mm. multiple things using your oven for just one recipe is extremely like low is extremely not planet friendly
1: interesting it so, makes sense it makes sense
0: so the air fryer came along and kind of just like really upended you know kitchen appliances and like i don't know if you have an air fryer but i have one very small Asian size one, and I mean, we just barely ever use our oven anymore. Everything goes in the air fr- fryer, and it's so easy yeah. I mean, I'm obsessed so with the air
1: fryer. I've yeah. had it for about a year, and I would say it's almost an everyday. Agree. Like Agreed. it's amazing. And
0: vegetables in the air fryer, like there's nothing like my broccoli recipe from the air fryer. It's just I eat it three times a week. It's so good. So and, and
1: quickly before we we go into the big story, what does it mean to have an asian-sized air fryer
0: <laughs> i bet you it's a third of the size of your air fryer if That's
1: very you, the, funny. Little,
0: the little container that we cook our food in you would you would just die i think i think you'd be like this is so small everything's I,
1: just too big in the u.s
0: <laughs> and i got my air fryer second hand for 200 hong kong dollars which is basically about 16 or 17 u.s
1: oh my god it's amazing
0: yeah, and it still works. Two years later, we use it every day. Um, oh my god! But so we, we transitioned
1: are... from a cooking show to a, a a kitchen appliance show. Well,
0: no, but now I'm really fascinated by what you know the spoon was sharing and these kind of appliances that are mixing microwave technology with air fryer technology. And I'm actually quite fascinated by the kitchen of the future, smart fridges and and like you know waste food waste help um help. Uh, appliances that help you cut food waste you know like mill and and what's the other one the the ones and there's another one
1: I I know I know mill and I've heard really really good things about that actually yeah which is for people that don't know it's a it's an at-home composting uh appliance that basically speeds up the whole process so you don't have to put it in your backyard and all that but um it's it's expensive though it's it's definitely expensive.
0: expensive yeah um, and we
1: have to avoid the uh, the Juicero situations with appliances, right?
0: Oh, my where God, $700. Basically,
1: for <laughs> anyone who doesn't know Juicero's story, the high level is a company that raised tons and tons and tons of money for an, an on, on-counter smoothie like, appliance. And then one Bloomberg like story where they show that, oh, if you just squeeze the pouches yourself, you get the exact same smoothie. You don't need a big machine. It like ruined the whole company. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, that was yes, yeah, the Juicero tales. Um, yeah, there was we did a piece where we a few weeks ago, end of November, where we talked about all the home composters and there's like the Lomi, there's Mail, there's the Food Cycle from Vitamix, there's a few. Um, a lot of them are actually not composters. They're um, they're actually more. Um, they dehydrate and grind down the waste it's not an, a necessarily always a live compost, which which shows, a live compost is when microbes are decomposing your organic matter. So it's interesting, but we all we call it. So Some sometimes they're known as digesters, mm. but composter is now used just anyway. There's a lot of activity in this space because food waste is obviously such a huge problem. And there's still just such a lack of composting infrastructure in, in most cities and 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 other areas across the world so it's super interesting um
1: and Definitely. We're, we're looking at an investment right now that's trying to tackle that a little bit but I can't really yeah. share that
0: <laughs> well maybe one day you'll share it um so anyway that concludes I the the fun uh, kitchen appliance
1: <laughs> this is the the, of the our, future of the kitchen show weekly. Yes.
0: we'll have to get Michael from The Spoon to come on and tell us like what he thought was super exciting at CES. He always has really good takeaways. Um,
1: No, that would be awesome. But
0: I think there is a lot you can do. And actually, um, he inspired me to work on an article that we're going to come out with, which is like how to, what what are the worst appliances in your kitchen? So for example, your oven and how, you know, what are the best ones from an emissions point of view? So stay tuned for that. All right. I'm, I'm
1: waiting to hear that the microwave is the top choice and then I'll just yeah, be I happy. Told you,
0: the oven is the worst already. So, Oh, you mean the best choice? The microwave. The best. Ah.
1: This is, this is going to be the, the next, the microwave 2.0 revolution. I'm telling you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Only an American could say it. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So big story this week. Um, we decided to write a little bit about the leadership changes at some of um, the bigger, at some of the big all protein companies. There's been a bunch of movement. The industry is maturing. CEOs are stepping down, making way for, and founders are stepping down, making way for new leadership and new CEOs. And this is a topic that's really interesting because the industry now is really kind of growing up and maturing And I think um, there's a lot to be said about, you know, what's the difference between a founder and a CEO and are they the same person and should they be the same person and when is the right time to change? And so there's been, so Andre Menezes, uh, the former CEO and and co-founder of Tyndall Foods, the plant-based chicken company that has now had a global footprint and that has raised, um, you know, some of the biggest rounds in plant-based. Um, they are, uh, he stepped out, and co-founder Timo Recker, who was the executive chairman and who had previously been CEO a few years ago, has now come, come back in as CEO. And then the big story of the week was really perfect day. The precision fermentation uh, whey protein pioneer. Uh, they've announced that they're they've secured well, A pre-series e-round of up to 90 million this is really important to clarify they have not fully raised the 90 million they are raising 90 million a portion of which came from their existing investors and they've announced that the co-founders ryan pandya and paramal gandhi um, are stepping down from the board and from day-to-day operations and ryan was previously the ceo and now they have an interim CEO as they look for a new permanent CEO. And we've been seeing this across other companies like V2 Foods in Australia, where CEO Nick Hazel stepped down la- last year and um, just a few other companies where there's just been leadership changes. Obviously, Miyoko's comes to mind. So how do, how are you looking at this? Yeah, I mean, I think I think
1: each company is going to have their, their own situation. Um, So it's not going to just be like every transition of a CEO uh, is going to be the same, or even some companies, they don't even feel the need to transition the founder to a non CEO role. But like for, for this week, like when I look at this one, like, I I actually don't know the, the Tyndall team myself, but looking at that story, it seems pretty amicable and makes sense for the business and the old CEO and co-founder just taking it back for, reasons that make sense from like a geographic standpoint and where their business is but it seems pretty pretty fine but when i look at a perfect day like in the in the news it seems amicable right it sounds like oh they're stepping down they bring someone else in while they're also raising money and nice quotes from the co-founders but i i i feel like both co-founders are abruptly leaving so so abruptly that you actually need an interim CEO you haven't found the the definite full-time person yet um like that just means to me like you're there's other things going on and with with Perfect Day they've raised 750 million dollars so I mean the reality that I think is happening is Temasek, Horizon, the big investors they're saying you guys thank you for everything you've done it is not you're not the right ones to run the business anymore though. And you raised three quarters of a billion dollars. We need a three quarters of a billion dollars or more type CEO. And that's, that's what I think is happening. And that's, I think that's appropriate sometimes, right? Like it's a weird thing to say, because I invest in early stage companies where like, we believe in the team first. It's all about the team. Who are they? Why are they doing this? Are they the right people? But are they the right people as for, for going from nothing to something, but, at some point, hopefully, that something becomes a massive corporation. And that's a very different business. So um, mm-hmm. but one thing I think we you and I do want to hit on, though, is like what's the right way to transition a CEO, right? Like that's something that that you you definitely have a lot of thoughts on, and I, we talked about a little bit,
0: yeah. I mean, I think I think that, as you said, in very, very early stage companies, there is a case to be made for the founder and the CEO being the same person. Um, it's just the nature of a startup and the hustle and like doing multiple roles. And it's th- the role of a CEO early on is really that visionary person that is really infusing the the team with this kind of, you know, yeah, this mission that's like bigger than the company and getting getting people to believe and getting people on board. I think as companies mature and certainly when they've raised close to a billion dollars, I think the CEO role becomes a lot more technical and requires, especially in a food company. I think you need probably someone to come in from, you know, a former big food with, with real kind of that kind of industry experience. And that operational know-how and yeah, you know, um, I think there's some, you know, I, I I I always have these chats with um someone I know well who who worked at, at Meta and and you know, they always mention, well, look at Mark and Cheryl and what a great kind of partnership that was. And I think as the founder who then transitions, you you really need to know when your role is to empower others who may have that experience that the company needs at that stage in their life cycle and your role is to provide that overarching vision you know the heart of the company the soul and and that kind of what helps people believe in the bigger in the bigger picture and and i also think it is very very rare for a founder to end up being the same to have the skill set that takes them from a zero to a billion-dollar company, it can happen, and it has happened. There are some great examples, but it is unusual.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I agree with all of that, and I think, um, I, I've seen it. I've seen these transitions go uh, many different ways, and there's like the ways that are horrible, right? Where like the CEO or the founder and CEO thinks they're the right person they're there they are they they don't believe that they're not the right person the board thinks differently it becomes hostile and and that those situations don't end up usually going that well and then i've seen it go really well and i would say this is rare unfortunately but i've seen it go really well we have a portfolio company of ours that the, the founder and ceo is exactly what you you were mentioning of this they were the visionary they sold the vision they had they or focus on impact and building something big and getting a team really excited about it and they did a good job getting to a certain point point. and then they actually happened to agree that they were not the best person to take it to the next step because it became just a traditional food business in this case and that's not what their background was so they brought in a legitimate food ceo who had done this before and, and, and for 20 years with a different firm um but the thing is they they kept the founder they didn't say thank you so much have a nice life you're off the board you're not not in the company they they happened to to keep him on i forget the title it's like chief visionary or chief innovation or something like that but um but that's been a really good experience but that's really hard to do right cuz like a startup's like your baby for the founder and you put so much of your life but like your truly your entire life into it so to at some point be told you don't get to control things anymore and it's not yours. It feels like they're taking that away. And I can understand that, but for something like a perfect day, like I really do think, and, and you actually mentioned this, so I'm not going to say oh, this was my idea, but when you raise three quarters of a billion dollars, like you you need to make sure that that company is operating like that level of a, of an organization. And if it's not the right people, you got to change it. This is, it might be a startup on paper because they're not profitable and they still need to raise right. money, but but, from an organization standpoint, this is a massive company that needs to be run like that,
0: right. And I think there's no shame in recognizing that, you know, as a founder, you may not have the skills. and And I think in our industry, in the future food industry, we this was one of my kind of predictions or kind of hopes for this year is can we have more, you know, food industry talent coming into the fray and really execute on? what what needs to happen when companies reach a certain size and i i i just have a lot of respect for a founder that's able to kind of get out of the way
1: and i yeah i I mean it's got to be so hard to do it's got to be so hard
0: exactly which is which is why i mean i i think that's a discipline that shows a lot of foresight and a lot of um self-awareness and also a lot of you know long-term commitment to the benefit of the company and i and I think there's just like nothing. There's nothing wrong with with recognizing that at a certain point the CEO role becomes, it's not a founder role, it's a technical operational role, and I think that's the problem. Is that founder and CEO don't always they just don't mean the same thing at a certain point.
1: Definitely, I I I I I fully fully agree, and I think it's it's it's. You have to know when is the right time. And and last thing on this, last story I would tell on this is I have, I've seen it go the wrong way in the from the investor side of things, saying it's time to bring in a real CEO. And I've seen a real CEO get brought in. And it, the business kind of still t- looked too much like a startup than a, a larger business. And that CEO floundered. So it wasn't the right time. It was not a good time. And it was because they're used to working for huge, big company global company and they come in and operate it that way but the company was too still too much like a startup so like like i don't even want to sit here and say a founder always needs to know when it's time to leave and they shouldn't fight it because maybe they're right sometimes so i can understand even from the founder point of view if they feel like they're the right person i can understand fighting for that and it's kind of you can only hindsight is 2020 you can only look back and know who was right at the time but um I mean, but sometimes it's a little more obvious. $750 million raised by perfect day. That's not a tiny, it shouldn't be run like a, a, a startup. So that's my personal opinion.
0: Yeah, I agree. What's next on the docket?
1: Next on the docket. So it feels like we talk about this general topic a lot, but um, this is uh, like, so upside foods. Upside boozers. This is in the newsletter. It basically says upside. They responded to a recent article. This was a Bloomberg article. Um, they said they said the Bloomberg article contained a lot of inaccurate information. It left out a lot of information that was that was shared with with the the journalist at, at Bloomberg. And because it was left out, they feel like one, they had to address it and call out the in, in, inaccuracies. But then also I've been seeing people say that the The Bloomberg piece should be treated more like an op-ed, like an opinion piece, and not like an actual article. Because if it, it seems like there's a bias, like there's a story the the journalist is trying to tell, and I'm not even going to get into that. I don't. Maybe maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. I'm, I'm not actually sure. But I one thing I, I thought was interesting was someone at Upside. And just to be clear, I am not an investor at in Upside. I am an outsider. I, I don't know anything that the public doesn't know and but someone at upside reached out to me after that article came out and 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 said how do you think we should respond to this how do you think we should respond to this this bloomberg article that's just inaccurate and feels like a hit piece and and like i basically told them two things which was one i would evaluate how much time and effort does this do you think that this requires is it worthwhile to always respond to these types of things with your own blog blog article or with your own piece being put in, in Bloomberg? Or do you think that this is something that you just, you let it exist and then you, it'll disappear over time because different news will come out. So I, I said, focus on how much do you think, how important do you think this is? And then the second one is like, I basically said like, as an investor, I'm not a journalist, right? So as an investor, in my mind, the only way to kind of shut up any of the naysayers or hit pieces or whatever is execute and prove it. So like, I do kind of feel like in this instance, like upside a couple of times has said, we have proven that our single cell suspension technology is scalable, or whatever whatever else they said on that. And I haven't seen that. And again, I'm not an insider, but neither is any journalist out there or any any consumer. So, if the people who aren't insiders don't see what you're saying you can do. And then someone says they can't do that. If you want to prove them wrong, then just do it. So that's kind of what I said. I said it in a much like nicer way and whatever, but like, that's kind of what I thought, but I wanted to get your take on this. Because like I just said, I'm not a journalist. I have no idea what the code of ethics is in the space or how things should be responded to, or so like, how do you see these types of things, where whether it's upside or another company in the space that has either an article that feels like a hit piece or there's some negativity around it? Like, what do you think about from the journalism standpoint of how the company should be responding to these things?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's multiple issues here. So I want to separate them out. I mean, you're bringing up the issue of, their actual technology and that that's a separate issue. And like, I, I'm not, I'm gonna let Upside speak to that. Um, I'm gonna speak more about the journalism issue and it's no secret that there's just such an issue in mainstream media um, with kind of bias and misinformation. And it seems that our future food Innovation sector gets hit with a lot of um, pieces that perhaps um, editors like because they bring in a lot of clicks. There seems to be a ton of shade and Freud around, you know, companies in our space not doing well. i I'm not I, I don't always understand that sentiment from journalists and editors. In the mainstream that they, you know, they they want companies to fail in our space. Meanwhile, big companies do all kinds of terrible things um, every day. And there just doesn't seem to be the same level of reporting on those companies who are far bigger and have far more resources and are doing far worse for the climate. Um, but it all comes down to a lack of understanding of, you know um why why would you know journalists are they clear on the connection between food and climate and are we doing enough good mainstream reporting on that connection and why there are these future food select solutions and why these these kind of um, companies exist and what they're trying to do and I think that's one issue that is we don't have enough journalists writing about the food and climate connection um i think the piece that you're talking about um i definitely think there was some bias in that piece um and i think that you know if you're if you're upside foods i think you you know why not respond um however it's complicated I mean, there are going to be. But people. do you think
1: that the response is the right response, right? Like I'm saying like. I I, I, I read the I've response. Seen, I've fine. seen both
0: sides. I've seen people say the response was really important and necessary. And I've seen people say, well, the response just reads like a. You know, too little, too late. Um, and it's it also depends on how much you trust the reporting in the original piece. So I think it's 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 really complicated. But if. If Upside or any company does try to tell a journalist where they're at and a journalist doesn't want to go ahead and share that information, I think that's problematic. And I think that that is not how it should work. You know, I think that companies should be able to Share their information I- i'm not I'm not an insider at upside food, so I- I'm not in their factory i don't I don't know the details, but I know that 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 response is what is they what they felt was the true reflection of their situation and what happened with that particular piece um I think it's i think in this case given um given that there seemed to be a big gap between what they had shared with the reporter and what was printed, I think it's it's a fair response. And in fact, um, Bloomberg then published that response.
1: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think the response was fine. I think it's good to respond. Do you think that like, I'm being a little naive here, right? As not a journalist or whatever, where I'm saying like, yeah, you could respond all day and say trust us we can actually do what they say we couldn't do. And I'm saying just 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 show people, just do it. Just like and then all the the, the ideas or the the concerns that it's not possible, everyone's just like, oh okay, we were wrong. Blatantly wrong because you're doing what you're saying that you can do. I think it's like is that too naive? That.
0: I think <laughs> it's more complicated than that. I think Upside Foods is one of the bigger players in a very new space that has a lot of scrutiny and they have a lot riding on what they're doing and the greater public maybe doesn't necessarily understand the ins and outs of this very kind of deep tech space. And so I think there's what insiders can understand and what a mainstream reader of a news uh, platform can understand. And I think that, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's bigger than that. It's bigger than, you know, oh, just do it. And then people will figure it out because I think there's a lot of, um, there's a lot riding on some of the bigger players in this space because this space is under so much scrutiny. So I, I don't know that you can just buckle down and, and do your work when you're, you're being featured across a lot of different media and, you almost have, you know, you, you, you have like a loudspeaker as as one of the main companies in that space. So I-, I Oh no, think- I,
1: I, I agree with that. I don't think I'm saying like, ignore everything, don't respond and just focus on working. I'm saying like in their response, it said we actually can do the stuff that is being said we can't do. And in my mind at this point now, I feel like, the only way to get people to truly believe that is to show them that you actually can do those things that you say you can already do. So that's that's kind of how I'm feeling about it, where like you've raised 400 plus million dollars. You're saying that you could do a certain thing. Other people are saying you can't. Well, like So just show it, even at a smaller scale. You don't have to do it at a full 2000 liter scale bioreactor. Do, do it at a smaller scale. Just show that you can do it and show the data also it just feels like that's what it's the only thing that would shut people up and saying you can do it it's like well do people trust that or not but
0: so i, I mean i mean do people trust even if you do what you say if if, if probably, doing, probably i don't not. know like, like that's you, a fair you know, point I, I don't know i just i don't i don't think it's that simple i think like that's the fair. idea of facts have just lost all meaning and you can people believe what they want to believe I think this is a bigger story about ideology and, and kind of, you know, how reporting has become skewed towards clickbait and how the lines have blurred between being a reporter and, and having an agenda based opinion. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of (laughs) agendas at play here. And, you know, there's the big meat agenda, there's the climate agenda, there's, it's more than just saying, oh, my tech works, or my tech is in progress. I don't know. And like, I think there are people that will never be convinced.
1: Um, That's fair. I think that's fair. So, but I I guess time, time will tell, time will tell. Very interesting topic, very curious to hear from others what they think. Um, But aside from upside, what, what did you find interesting in, in this, this newsletter?
0: Um well I liked I thought it was interesting the the WK Kellogg story about the cereal um it kind of dovetails with a couple of uh trends that I wrote about in my trend piece last week um I exactly wrote that Gen Z is the snacking generation so it's interesting that this cereal has been introduced it's like a high protein plant-based cereal by the newly spun off W.K. Kellogg, and what's really interesting is that it's being marketed as 100% plant based, and the reason for that is that a lot of people may not realize that many cereals on the shelf are not vegan friendly because they contain a vitamin D fortification. A lot of vitamin of a lot of vitamin D comes from sheep's lanolin, so. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think I was telling you, I didn't even know that. So there's a
0: lot going on here. There's like vegan cereal, like is that, do we even need to say vegan cereal or like would most people assume cereal is vegan? There's the high protein thing going on. There's the kind of fun, well-branded, you know, cereal snack as a snack um, and as a high protein food. Um, and a low sugar food, and there's been a bunch of these kind of high protein cereal snacks that have launched in the past eighteen to twenty four months that have made quite a buzz, and and Kellogg's obviously trying to get in on it. So it's just it's just really a fun one.
1: Yeah, yeah I mean, I I oh, I would say I'm a I, I'm a I'm a cereal connoisseur uh, if I if I had to call myself something. <laughs> so, but um, I love this. I mean, there's there's. I, it, it's it, to me, it feels like Magic Spoon, but vegan. So it, I was really bummed out a couple of years ago when like Magic Spoon launched. It's a similar idea, like a, a healthy fortified cereal that is low sugar, high protein, et cetera. Um, it, it's a little expensive, but I was still willing to try it. And when I went to go get it, I realized oh, they use they use like milk protein as like the way to get their protein up. So I'm like, okay, I can't use this now. Um, so it feels like this is something that everyone could have. And then also like, honestly, this is probably going to crush magic spoon. Like Kellogg's is going to have distribution everywhere immediately. If they, uh, and it seems like they already do. You were Googling it earlier and it was like, you just went on Walmart and they already have it on walmart.com. And it's like, it's, they're just going to get massive, massive distribution. So it's, it's definitely a fun one. I'm, I, I definitely want to try it.
0: Um, yeah, me too. I probably won't be able to try it. It probably won't come to Asia, but it's it's just interesting watching this trend play out. You know, the I, the other trend that this dovetails with is the like functional food trend, and I think we're gonna see a lot of like gut health foods. We're gonna see again a lot of protein foods, and this goes a lot with what I heard from Asian plant based company investors who are who are who are going beyond just plant based meat and doing high protein plant-based snacks. And so it's just, it's just interesting. Like people are just snacking more and they want high functionality foods and yeah, it's a fun one. It's a fun one to end with today.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I agree. And I think, I think we could end it on that one because honestly, it feels like a positive to me as someone who's obsessed with cereal. I'm like really, really excited. And the fact that it get a huge distribution for a new product from a big company and it happens to be vegan or plant-based, that's, that feels like a a good win
0: yeah and no more sheep's lanolin so yay all right well that's that's the show this week and we'll be back next week um see you later